Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Good morning. I'm Doug Krisner. I'm Brian Curtis. Here are the stories we're following today. President Biden has responded to the charges in the special counsel's report. Ed Baxter has more from the Bloomberg Newsroom. Eddie? Yeah, counsel Robert Hurd, Doug, released a 400-page report taking it from the top that says President Biden knowingly stored and disclosed classified information kept in unsecured locations at his home in Virginia and Delaware, but did not rise to the bar of any kind of prosecution because he did not try to obstruct. He did not try to cover it up. President Biden has held a news conference, which we carried here on Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, and says he did not share classified information. Thank you, everyone. I did not share classified information. I did not share it. With your ghostwriter. With my ghostwriter. I did not. Guarantee you did not. But the special counsel said it. No, he did not say that. Okay. He did not say that. But, Mr. President, what other... Let me answer your question. The fact of the matter is, what I didn't want repeated, I didn't want him to know, and I didn't read it to him, was I had written a long memorandum to President Obama why we should not be in this in Afghanistan. Now, he says he wished he'd paid more attention to what his staff was doing. He says that his, on another subject, his mental acuity is fine. And look at the job he has been doing, he says. In the yelling of questions, he was asked whether he was up to the job of president. Well, politically, Bloomberg's Balance of Power co-host Joe Matthews says this is going to take some sorting out. It's going to be a difficult message for him to sell in this campaign when Donald Trump can make an advertisement with a Department of Justice statement saying that this is an elderly man who is uh, forgetful and has trouble remembering what he's talking about here. Um, we're going to have to give this a minute. There are a lot of folks in Washington today who thought this was a very major event on the campaign. There are others who think that Joe Biden has been exonerated here and has a good story to tell in, in contrasting himself to Donald Trump. So this might take some time. Uh, so as uh, Joe very well says, uh, this may take a minute. Down the road we go. Senate has advanced a procedural motion to begin debate on a $95 billion package to fund aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. That debate, well, Senator Lindsey Graham says detaching is definitely a mistake. Our border is a bigger national security threat to us uh, in the short term than Ukraine. We have not even begun to do what we could do to secure the border. And Senator Dick Durbin says, though, it's time. We need to do something now. We had a bipartisan approach to it. The president was on board. We were ready to pass it, and the Republicans walked away from their own plan. Now, he says GOP can't keep backing away from responsibility because of Donald Trump's politics. Members of the Senate and House have said they're willing to work into and or through the weekend to get it done. Global News, 24 hours a day, whenever you want it, with Bloomberg News Now in San Francisco. I'm Ed Baxter, and this is Bloomberg. All right, guys, back to you. All right, thanks very much, Ed. Six minutes here past the hour. Brian Curtis and Doug Krisner and Ed Baxter, of course, looking at news. Well, let's take a look at the top business stories of the hour. U.S. regulators are monitoring risks from non-bank mortgage lenders. Think companies like Quicken Loans and Rocket Mortgage. Well, today, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said non-bank lenders don't have the same resources to tap when markets strain. Here's Yellen speaking before the Senate Banking Committee. Non-bank mortgage companies um, lack access to the kind, to deposits which banks have 
um, their short-term, they're reliant on short-term financing that may be a lot less stable uh, than uh, deposits. And um, in stressful times, their credit lines can be pulled. They don't have access to the kinds of liquidity backstops that banks have as well, such as the Fed's discount window. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen there. Non-banks like Quicken and Rocket have become a major presence in the mortgage market. They rely on short-term funding instruments to back their operations. And credit lines can be pulled in times of stress. Doug? So much of the conversation these days has been around the macro and Fed policy. Well, today we learned that initial jobless claims here in the States were down last week for the first time in three weeks. The numbers support the cautious rhetoric we have heard recently from a number of Fed members. Today, it was the head of the Richmond Fed, Tom Barkin, saying that policymakers have time to be patient. He'd like to see a few more months of disinflation before cutting rates. I have said you don't have to be in any particular hurry. You've got a dual mandate with employment and uh, inflation. And the employment side of the mandate, I mean, it's actually operating at historic levels, 3.7 percent unemployment, job gains we talked about, initial claims, uh, job openings. It's a very strong labor market still. And so um, gratified to see inflation coming down, hoping it continues to come down. And I think we've got some time to be patient. Tom Barkin there, the head of the Richmond Fed. Now, tomorrow we'll be getting the government's annual revision to the consumer price index. Seasonal adjustment factors are removed from these data. They're usually relatively minor and pretty much ignored by markets. However, last year's revisions large enough to cast a lot of doubt on the Fed's progress toward lowering inflation. Brian. Huawei says its office in France has been searched by investigators. Bloomberg's Joanne Wong has the story. The France Justice Ministry says the probe was launched over suspicions of impropriety. That could mean alleged corruption, misuse of public funds or influence peddling, among other infractions. Authorities have declined to provide further details. Huawei said it's cooperating fully with the investigations. The news comes as Huawei built a production factory in eastern France near Strasbourg. It's scheduled to open at the end of 2025. France has kept the company out of some key parts of its wireless infrastructure that has weighed on Huawei's revenue in the country. In Hong Kong, I'm Joanne Wong, Bloomberg Radio. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Chinese President Xi Jinping has told Russian President Vladimir Putin in a telephone call that the two nations need to work closely together to defend security and oppose foreign interference. Joining us now is Rebecca Chong-Wilkins, Bloomberg Asia government and politics correspondent, to discuss more. Do we know which foreign countries the president is referring to? We don't have a great deal of, of detail specifically, but I think we can make a good and educated guess. I mean, we increasingly have seen sort of as Russia and, and China have become closer, um, the visions, of course, with the US and with other Western democracies um, have become somewhat more pronounced. And we have had more broadly, I would say, in China, the uh, Ministry of Security has been much more vocal about, for example, surveillance and uh, sort of those kinds of national security threats that it faces from other uh, nations and spies from other countries. So kind of a multipolar, fairer world order, right? 
Absolutely, yes. This is certainly uh, a sort of a more defensive take, I, I, I would say, of that idea of a multipolar world, um, one that you know, is implied here, implicitly here, uh, does pit them against, uh, you know, other forces that are challenging both China and Russia. I'm, I mentioned in the context of um, of a couple of other issues that have been making news. Uh, uh, for instance, Lionel Messi is one, and also uh, difficulties uh, with management of the country's brokerages and handling of securities uh, in in China. That there's there's a tendency here of late, in particular, to blame foreigners or to blame uh, others uh, rather than policymakers for the issues. Um, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I do think that's right. Sometimes when we see these sort of somewhat embarrassing affairs, you know, embarrassing events, M Messi being a sort of particularly obvious one here, uh, and something of an own goal, one could argue, so much attention has been drawn to this now. Uh, there is a sort of a tendency and a desire to blame outside forces. And in Hong Kong, we often hear this phrase of you know, the black hand of interference, essentially in inferring that the US and other countries have, have caused uh, strife. Um, and and somewhat in, in China too. I do think with the stock route, though, although there has been some sort of criticism um, directed outside. There is also attention focused more domestically. Uh, if we think back to 2015 and 2016, there was this big push uh, to try and clean up uh, wrongdoing and those who engaged in criminality and illegal types of short selling and so on. And, and we are starting to see a little bit of that too. So I think there will be a call when it comes to that case in particular for some kind of accountability at home as well. We were talking back in 2022 during the China Winter Olympics she agreeing to a no limits friendship with Vladimir Putin. Are the two aligned now as they look to expand their global influence? Do they have the same goals or is there a bit of competition here that would be kind of uh, worth watching? Well, this has always somewhat been uh, a marriage of convenience, but the relationship has entailed risks for both of them. And though while we have seen China stepping in to sort of make up that shortfall, that the, the financial pain inflicted by sanctions. So, you know, China is the main buyer of discounted uh, Russian energy, for example. It's also a big supplier of sort of cars, uh, lots of white goods, mobiles, things like that. There are certainly tensions in the relationship. And it hasn't been the case, as you know, some have said that Putin is simply sort of uh, uh, a puppet, or it's simply just you know she is able to exert a great deal of influence over him. Um, and even in terms of sort of some of the energy deals, they they flick at this briefly uh, uh, in the call that there's this this desire for both of them to work on on energy deals. But when you look at the specific big examples, think about the proposed natural gas pipeline, Power of Siberia two, for example, Beijing has. Sort of appeared to hold out for a more favorable deal from Moscow there. So it, it's really sort of, I guess, an oversimplification to say that even since that no limits relationship, um, we've seen sort of all smooth sailing. I think what we have seen, in fact, is that the relationship does have plenty of limits. When President Xi went to Moscow um, last year, uh, President Putin told him that Russia was ready to discuss China's proposal to end the war in Ukraine. Has there been any traction on that? 
Yeah, we haven't seen a, a great deal on that, and, and particularly even that the proposal itself from China hasn't been particularly at the fore of discussions. It was interesting to me that there didn't appear, at least according to the um, state broadcaster CCTV who reported on this phone call, that there didn't seem to be a great deal uh, about much sort of much made of that. Right now, I mean, we've talked uh, every day about the, the challenges facing the Chinese economy. Is is President Xi's focused squarely on trying to get China to recover and, and maybe the relationship with Russia, although it's important, kind of is going to take very much a backseat? The domestic policy is front and center for him right now? I think that is the case. Yes, domestic policy certainly is very, very pressing right now because the economic challenges... Excuse me, sorry, but also because the urgency with which uh, the the stock market route is presenting problems. I mean, we've also sort of coming up to the to the Lunar New Year holidays where we see this pause in trading for six days. So it has been we have been sort of in the last week or so during this essential period where policymakers have this fixed window of time to try and stop the stock route. The swift removal of the head of the CSRC that came much much faster than we saw the equivalent move back in 2016 by the way. So I think that we are seeing these sort of indicators that for policymakers and for Xi presumably himself, this is a really sort of a top issue. I recall back in 2015 as well, there was a meeting where Xi himself had scribbled on the note of, of a report going to, to some of the regulators that to make sure that they looked after these small and mid-level investors. And I think that focus on protecting mom and pop investors, retail investors, again, going to be a top priority for Xi. Rebecca, you mentioned black hands uh, here in Hong Kong. It comes up all the time, uh, fearing the interference of foreign countries. Uh, we had the Hong Kong immigration authorities yesterday introducing a new national security risk test for visa applicants. Now, this is to prevent people who are deemed a risk from being able to enter Hong Kong. This is not something that we've seen a lot of in the past. There have been people in the past that were on a blacklist that were denied entry, but this seems to be expanding in this area. Um, I'm also curious on whether or not you think that this will extend to lawyers and to academics and to journalists. Yes, this is interesting. I mean, the government has said you know, and in light of sort of Article 23, it's security, uh, national security legislation too, that it's very much business as usual in the city. That's the image that they want to project. But of course, at the same time, this new legislation and this new national security test, this immigration and test sort of does suggest otherwise. It is certainly an uh, you know, a significant uh, development, I would say. But we already have seen visa denials for people such as academics uh, and um, uh, uh, journalists, as well as lawyers. So we are already seeing all three of those sort of industries somewhat being targeted by visa denials. I think quite recently, a Japanese mm. freelance reporter, uh, for example, was, was denied entry at the border at Hong Kong's airport. And so in some ways, perhaps this is more of a formalization of that process that we already unfortunately are starting to see underway this is bloomberg daybreak asia your morning brief on the stories making news from hong kong to singapore and wall street look for us on your podcast feed every day on apple spotify and anywhere else you get your podcast you can also listen live each day on bloomberg 1130 in new york 
Bloomberg 99.1 in Washington, Bloomberg 1061 in Boston, and Bloomberg 960 in San Francisco. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Plus, listen coast to coast on the Bloomberg Business app, Sirius XM, the iHeartRadio app, and on Bloomberg.com. I'm Brian Curtis. And I'm Doug Krisner. Join us again tomorrow for all the news you need to start your day right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Asia. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.